Wonder Things Studios proudly presents a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Tim Wagner. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Samantha Murphy. And you've tuned in to a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in a never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed, it is a never-ending quest. It literally cannot stop. Once you stop learning, by God, you stop. You start dying. Uh, uh, and don't do that, please. Keep, keep the books open, the minds open, the ideas flowing. Let that quest continue. And my quest, of course, is to continue to have awesomeness sitting in my co-host chair. Uh, and dear friends, it is my great pleasure to introduce you to Samantha Murphy, uh, a friend from the Ander Librams, a newly appointed lore guardian to the Hellmaw urban fantasy series. Samantha, I am delighted we got a chance to, to spend some time on the, on the Skype line. Thank you so much for making the time for this. Thank you for having me here. It's uh, It's been interesting so far, and I look forward to more. <laughs> interesting is our middle name here. So is horrifying and very awesome, and, and holy crap, I didn't see that coming. All of those are our <laughs> middle names. <laughs> so for now, I'll tell you what, sit back, relax. What, what, is your, what is your libation of choice today, Samantha? What do you got sitting by the microphone there? Uh, nothing but the finest of gourmet root beer. Gour- gour- oh, see... Give us a brand name. I got to write this one down. What do you got? Uh, my favorite is Spreckner's. Spreckner's Root Beer. Holy, I've never heard of it. I will be consuming it. Friends, this is why you tune into the roundtable. You get information you didn't know you needed, but absolutely got to have. Spreckner's Root Beer. Very cool. We'll take a pull on the Spreckner's Root Beer, ma'am, and sit back while I introduce you to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I? Go ahead. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. All right. Well, now, for those of you who aren't aware of my stalking uh, uh, research tactics uh, <laughs> when preparing for a guest host, uh, it basically consists of me entering the guest host's name followed by the word interview into Google. And then I troll the results and find all my autobiographical tidbits. But one of the other things that you notice when you do that is how often that person's name appears in other people's interviews as they reference that individual. Uh, and that's very much the case with our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. His work spans genres and demographics and even licensed properties. And among his many distinctions, he is one of the few Americans granted the privilege of writing in the Doctor Who universe. And... <laughs> You can tell I'm a nerd because with all his nominations and awards and year's best appearances, that's the thing that stands out for me. <laughs> his path of literary awesomeness began at five years old when he wrote his first story. Now, actually, it was a comic book scribbled into a stenographer's pad titled King Kong versus Godzilla. 
And see, even at that tender age, our guest host was already working with licensed properties and had anticipated the kaiju phenomenon, uh, which is really just incredible. And of course, he acknowledges one of his earliest memories being uh, three or four years old and watching Frankenstein versus the Wolfman on TV. So clearly, his delight in the horrifying had taken root early on. Now, apparently, his childhood was a veritable font of horrific inspiration. He recounts a story of being a child and seeing glowing eyes at the foot of his bed, accompanied by a sound like a cross between a rattlesnake's rattle and the thrum of a cicada. And as the menacing eyes advanced, he turned on the nightstand lamp to discover nothing there. Dun-dun-dun. And whether that was an otherworldly visitation or just a child's imagination, we may never know. But our guest host would later weave that experience into a short story called Night Eyes. Now, he would continue his love of graphic narrative well into his teens, Uh, his most notable creation being the Bionic Team at the age of 12 that featured him and his friends as a team of cyborg superheroes. And as he pursued this love, he began to get the same feedback. Uh, Apparently, everybody loved his stories, but his art sucked. (laughs) That's just a a tragedy that every artist has to confront sometimes. Uh, Then, at 17, he read an interview with Stephen King in the back of a black-and-white issue of Dracula Lives from Marvel Comics. And reading about King, discussing his writing process in that interview, got our guest host thinking for the first time that writing might be a viable career path. After he finished the interview, he strode into the family room and told his mom he might like to be a writer. Her reply was, I think you'd be a good one which is very cool. Yay for parental support, right? He was a role-playing game dabbler in high school and never truly committed himself to the lifestyle. Uh, But those early D&D experiences would pay off later, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, For now, he enrolled at Wright State University in 1982, intending to be, wait for it, a theater major. Yes, friends, I'm telling you, 70% of all writers have theater somewhere in their background, as as testified time and again here on the roundtable. But interestingly, on the first day of class, his theater instructor pointed out that the only reason someone becomes an actor is because they have to, which... Honestly, it's absolutely true. Uh, And our guest host realized that as much as he loved acting, he didn't have the stamina or the endurance to make a career out of it. But when he asked himself what he did have to do in his life, he realized the answer was writing. So he switched his major to theater education and kept on crafting stories. Now, up to this point, he had been all over the genre map. Uh, He was using Writer's Digest as a source for where to submit stories and collecting a mountain of rejection slips, as you do. Uh, His commitment to the horror genre came when he was teaching composition part-time at various colleges. And in one of the college libraries, he found a copy of Ramsey Campbell's collection, Alone with the Horrors. And that collection gave him a sense of how short horror fiction works. Something clicked, and he decided it was time to give horror a serious try. However, his first professional sale wasn't horror or fantasy. 
well, actually, I guess maybe it could be considered fantasy. Uh, it was an erotic comic mystery titled Dying For It, uh, published by Foggy Window Books. <laughs> and what a great name for an, an erotica imprint, right? Foggy Window Books. Uh, our guest host had collaborated with the editor, Russell Davis, on an anthology of tales about Xena, Warrior Princess, and Davis had asked for some story pitches. And while it wasn't anything he was particularly interested in pursuing then or later, it did get him on the pro publication map. And since then, he has gone on to write horror, fantasy, and YA novels and stories, many of which were tie-ins to licensed properties like Stargate, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and even a, a choose-your-own-adventure story for Supernatural. And among his favorites, among his own canon of works, is the Matt Richter series that began with the story Necropolis, spelled with a K because it's scarier with a K, right? Uh, among the contributing factors to the development of that story was A, being part of a writing group, and B, gaming. And that pretty much comprises about 80% of our listenership. So, gang, you're doing something right. <laughs> now, in this particular case, our guest host was in a writing group with the distinguished Dennis McKiernan, author of the Mythgar series, as well as a healthy smattering of horror and crime fiction. And Dennis was in a gaming group. And he invited our guest host to join the gang. And the group shared game mastering duties. And when it was our guest host's turn, he ran a game that would become the foundation for Necropolis. Now, it was originally published as a novella by Five Star Press, but then years later, Mark Gascoigne of the mighty Angry Robot Books reached out. Uh, they had worked together on a Nightmare on Elm Street project for Black Flame Books, and now that Mark had his own imprint, he was checking to see if our guest host had anything to pitch. And the rights to Necropolis were his, so he offered it up. Mark loved it. But he asked for an extra 25,000 words to be added to make it into a full novel. And thus, the tales of Mark Richter, Zombie P.I., came into the world. In addition to hundreds of short stories and a small library wing of novels, our guest host writing has also appeared in Writer's Digest, Writer's Journal, and other publications. So it really shouldn't be surprising that he teaches composition and creative writing at Sinclair Community College in Dayton, Ohio, and is a faculty mentor in Seton Hill University's Master of Arts in Writing Popular Fiction program in Greensburg, PA. And... He was recently recognized as the Horror Writers Association's Mentor of the Year for 2016. Now, for reasons he can't understand, there are some projects he just needs to handwrite. After a woman in Florida read his novel Pandora Drive, she wrote to the Dayton police to ask them to investigate him since he could be a dangerous madman who is teaching defenseless students. And during an I Ching fortune-telling session, he asked, Will I become a professional writer? The response was, Perseverance furthers which is absolutely true dear friends please welcome to the big chair here at the round table tim wagner tim holy crap an epic saga of of literary fabulosity stretching out behind you and i know for a fact that you are far from finished with that adventure in your life so i'm really really grateful that we were able to carve a slice of time uh, uh to discuss your craft with you sir thank you so much well, thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. We're, we're delighted. We're delighted. Now, before we set the clock and start this process going, I, w- I wanted to ask. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, you are one of the few Americans permitted to write uh, a Doctor Who story. And I got to ask, how did you pull that off, dude? Because that is no small achievement. I just got lucky. The The editor of the anthology, Steve Savile, just asked, you know, for submissions. And evidently, uh, I think he did it for Big Finish. And I think that he just had permission to ask anybody. It could be American, could be Brit, whoever. And so uh, just pitched an idea and he accepted it. Originally, it was supposed to be for Doctor Number Six, and he, Steve said, "No, make it Doctor Two. And so I changed the idea a little bit for that. But otherwise, the interesting thing for me when I got the the actual published anthology was to see how uh, somebody I don't know who decided to British it up by putting in like weird little British expressions that <laughs> I've never heard on Doctor Who, I've never heard anywhere. So. I don't know what they mean even. Cultural translation, I suppose, is what that is. Yeah, so that part was pretty cool. But, you know, I just, uh, you know, lucked into it. And since then, I mean, I I think the BBC has been, or whoever does the licensed Doctor Who stuff, has been very careful to make sure that just Brits do it. Okay. I guess they can get, you know, feel, uh, get a real good feel for the culture, so. Sure, sure. And that really is kind of a cornerstone of the Doctor Who franchise is is a window into that aesthetic and that cultural perspective. Right. But it was a lot of fun to ride, so. Oh, I'll bet. I, I will just bet. That's so cool. All right. Well, let, let's, let's, get, let's dive into this. That, that bit of curiosity set aside. Uh, let's start our 20 minutes with Tim Wagner. I'm setting the clock, uh, which we will promptly ignore. Poor clock. The clock must be developing a complex because we constantly ignore it. But we'll do our best to stay on track for this one. Um, Tim, let me ask you. You uh, were interviewed in SFF World back in August 2015, uh, uh, and you had stated that um, when you first started out, you you realized that that you were terrible at description and that some of your prose was was very plain and very basic, and you had made a conscious decision to start working on those areas of your craft. And I'm always curious, you know, it's always very laudable, I think, for a writer to recognize their weaknesses. Uh, uh, but it's, I think, a challenge to figure out exactly what to do to to turn those weaknesses into strengths. So I'm very curious, and, and for our listeners' sake, what exactly did you do to work on your descriptive narrative skills and, and to dress up your prose a bit? Yeah, I was 18 at the time, and I had just finished my first novel, which was um, a kind of a light medieval fantasy. And going back and rereading it, I, I noticed how plain, just like you described it, how plain the prose was. And I and comparing it to things that I read, I realized that I just wasn't describing very much. At the time, I wasn't sure why. Over the years, I've come to the belief that it's because the way that we, we get stories is mostly through visual media. And even if we read a bunch, I mean, we still have thousands upon thousands of hours more of visual media. And it gives you everything, you know, in one second, one instant, you know, on a screen, all this stuff can be can be shown to you in terms of color, in terms of setting, in terms of movement. Um, if there's music, it can set an emotional mood. And we only, when we write, have one word at a time to try to create, you know, either the same effect or, you know, an analog to that effect. Sure. So, but at the time, I wasn't sure what it was. So I just decided what I needed to do was just pay attention more to the world around me uh, instead of just living inside my head so much. And so whenever I'd be walking around campus or, or whatever I was doing, I made it a point to look around as opposed to just like looking straight ahead. 
And so I still do this to this day. And I, I wonder if people think I've got some kind of, you know, condition that keeps <laughs> me from, you know, just looking ahead. I look at anything. And I just, and I move my head at random a lot of times because you don't know what you'll see. You know, most of the time people only turn their heads if there's a sound or if they see movement like in the peripheral vision. Right. Uh, they don't look around. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And that, start, that started helping an awareness of that. Just reading more closely to the description that I thought was really good, that had an impact on me. Being able to just start to sense that I should have more here and just write, add more here later and mm. keep on going. If I needed to just get down like what was happening, sure. to remind myself to come back. Get and through that the, first draft, as it were. Yep. And as the years went by, I started to uh, just write with a, a deeper point of view and paying attention to what your character would be noticing or thinking and feeling and reacting to helped a lot too. You know, it's, it's it, the difference is uh, I do this in class a lot where I'll show um, a YouTube video from one of the uh, Bourne movies with Matt Damon. And, you know, when we're done, I ask him, you know, whose point of view is that from? And eventually somebody says the audience because we're just sitting there watching it. And then I show them, I, I forget what the name of the video is, but it, it's for a song called Bad Motherfucker. And the, <laughs> the filmmakers who made it, they just made uh, the movie Hardcore Henry that came out. Okay. And it's all from the perspective of, in, in the video on YouTube, it's just from the perspective of a spy. But it's as if, you know, we are, it's us, you know, it's from like our eyes. It's like a first person shooter kind of thing. It's so like a GoPro yeah. video yep. camera strapped to his yep. forehead. Okay. Right. And I say, this is what you want to imagine when you write. And so it's like the difference between being on like one side of the screen or the other almost. And, you know, once I started shifting over to that deeper point of view, that helped a lot. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and I remember reading in some of your interviews how you were, I think you were in a, in a group conversation uh, or a panel of some kind. And, and uh, uh, you had pointed out that, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. I was working on a description for a story that I'm working on. Everybody laughs, but you were dead serious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sitting up on stage with about five other people and there was an audience out there and yeah, that's I'm what was happening. Working on my story. Well, that's, I think that's very Buddhist. I mean, that, that, that being aware of the moment. I mean, there's, there's a strong uh, a Buddhist, almost a Zen quality to that. Did you, did you notice other changes in your life as you started doing that? That's a really good question. Um, you know, it, it, it really helps you be more attentive to the people around you. I mean, it sure. helps you just as, you know, just as a human being, but, you know, as a, as a father and a husband and a friend but, uh, and a coworker, but also as a teacher. I mean, being more aware, mm -hmm. you know, of the class and what's going on there, too, gives you a hell of a lot of story ideas, too, not just like simple <laughs> little descriptions. You know, in one week, this is a couple of years ago, but in one week I saw two different men that were walking backwards. They were both older men. One was walking backwards up up a hill, a sidewalk, but it was up a hill. And the other one was walking backwards in a little parking lot, kind of a strip mall kind of place. And then he walked around like backwards <laughs> behind it. And I have no clue if it was some kind of weird exercise, like if these were older guys and it was like some kind of, you know, help you with your balance kind of exercise that sometimes older people do or what it was. But I still have yet to find a place to put those guys in a story. But if I had, you know, trained myself to kind of look around, um, I, I could go through now, especially with my short stories, I could go through so many and say, this is the little thing I saw that gave me the idea for this. Or sometimes it's two things that are different, but I'll put them together in a story. But so being that has helped tremendously in terms of coming up with ideas, just being aware. And there are ideas that nobody else will come up with because nobody else saw those two men. Sure. Um, and your filters, your unique perspectives, those things, that's that's distinctly you. Right. 
And so just being able to observe more like that has really helped me do that, you know, to, to find stuff that's mine to write about as opposed to, you know, just kind of recycling stuff that I've either read or seen. That's exceptional. I love that. That's very cool. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Tim Wagner after this brief promotional break. From Michael R. Underwood, author of Geekomancy, Shield and Crocus, and more, comes Genre Knots, a science fiction adventure series in novellas. Fantasy, mystery, science fiction. We know these genres from TV and comics and more, but in Genre Knots, each genre is also a world unto itself inhabited by archetypal characters and filled with the tropes we all know and love. When stories go off track, you send in the genre knots. This team of narrative specialists travels across dimensions to find, evaluate, and fix broken stories, lest the ripples manifest as violence and upheaval in our own world. Struggling stand-up comedian Leah Tang is recruited to join the genre knots as stories are breaking at a record pace. Will she adapt to the bizarre and dangerous life of a genre knot, or will she end up as just another broken story? From May 9th to June 9th, Genre Knots is kickstarting a season one collected edition, comprising all six novellas. Head to michaelrunderwood.com slash kickstarter today to back the campaign and help shape the future of Genre Knots. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Tim Wagner. Let me let me turn the mic over to uh, my co-host uh, uh, Samantha because I know I know she's got questions for you too. Samantha, what what's on your mind uh, for for Master Tim here? Well, I would like to ask about um, your character development, uh, specifically, you know, Mister Jinx, you know, Mister uh, yes. Psychopathic Nightmare Clown. <laughs> uh, but this would be in general for any of your characters. Is you know, do you know? who they're going to be when you start out writing or are you one of those people who just you know the character evolves as as you write and sometimes even you're surprised by what they do good question you know i'd say a little bit of both like with jinx i had an idea of you know i wanted to use like the nightmare clown but i wanted to make it a little lighter so that it was kind of cartoonish and then one of the things that i always uh, that struck me about Roger Rabbit, the movie, not so much the book, but the movie was this, how it, it terrifying cartoon characters are in the real world. I mean, is that something <laughs> early on where they, where he's like in the, the cartoon producer's office with Eddie Valley and they give him some alcohol and he like sets off like a steam whistle. He actually turns into kind of one and makes this ear shrieking sound and the, and the glass shatters. And I was thinking just how much damage a character like that could do in a world where, you know, they're not bound by physics, but the rest of the world around them is. And mm-hmm. so I thought about, you know, well, there's that kind of dark scariness to characters like that. And it fits so well with kind of the dark clown. And so I, I did that. And then as I had, you know, as I explored the relationship between him and Audra, I mean, she created him. And she's not very happy to be working with him in a lot of ways because it's her nightmare, you know, made flesh. 
And once I started kind of going into the, like the partnership and like mother son kind of dynamic and sometimes how kids kind of, will, you know, parent their parents and there he changed because of that. And then also because since during the day, the, those nightmares become like, it's almost like Jekyll and Hyde. He becomes a different sort of depowered you know, humanized version of himself. And so I decided to make that version kind of opposite and it just gave me a lot to play with. So it's about half and half, you know, some of it was planned and other things happen as I put them in situations or more often as they interact with the other characters and I kind of get a chance to see who they are. What a great conceit for a character to be born, you know, an actual tangible character born of the subconscious fears of your protagonist. Uh, that is just rich story food. Uh, uh, I, I could actually, God, I could see that as an exercise for writers you know, if, if you're if you're stuck on you know what really drives your character, give the you know write a scene where they are confronted by a tangible manifestation of their greatest fear and and write the dialogue between those two. Mm-hmm. Oh God, that's huge. That's a great idea. I want to steal that <laughs> music <in> class. That's <laughs> all your <laughs> copyright, no problem. It's all yours, but <laughs> all part of the friendly roundtable service. Um, let me let me get a little uh, uh, step back a little bit uh, in in terms of our perspective on your craft, Tim. Um, you had mentioned uh, in an interview with uh, Matt Mulgards uh, back in 2015, uh, uh, and it was in response to to how readers react to your works uh, because you do span so many genres, so many demographics. And you, you mentioned that you're kind of like the elephant in the story of the blind man and the elephant, that, that you are what people see you are depending on the piece of story or, or fiction that they're, they're consuming at the moment. And I, I'm, I can totally see that. And that's absolutely true. I think for anyone, especially someone that spans uh, uh, genre and narrative as you do, but I'm curious now, Putting all of the public's opinion aside, what kind of writer do you think you are? Uh, or or you know, does it really matter? Um, it's a really good question. I pro- ultimately, it probably doesn't matter. Although, yeah. you know, often I think that people kind of struggle for, you know, unless they, unless they have an idea that's just burning in them to get down. Uh, if they're like me, they have lots of ideas and lots of things that they could write and not enough lifetime to write them all. And so as you're trying to kind of figure out where to put your energies at a given time, probably having some kind of sense of what kind of writer you are, or at least what you want to explore, you know, in yourself at any time will probably help. Um, You know, the thing that I like the most is as a reader and as a writer is to have my imagination stimulated. Mm. So, you know, even though when when I went to graduate school, I I went to get a, a master's in English and it was creative writing, but a lot of literature too. And most of the literature was realistic, you know, classic literature. And while I enjoyed it just fine, it didn't stimulate my imagination the same way uh, as science fiction and fantasy and horror does. And so, you know, I see myself as being a, a writer that that deals with those kind of imaginative elements. And though that's probably the most important thing for me. The stuff tends to be darker, even if it's funny, even if it tends to be adventure fiction, it still seems to draw on a horror background. I did a trilogy for Wizards of the Coast years ago, and even though the, it was, you know, fantasy adventure, you know, I drew, the character was kind of like a Van Helsing character, the main, and his partner, the two characters, and even though I never called them that, but each book, like the first one dealt with vampires, and the second one dealt with like a Frankenstein-type monster, and the third one dealt with like were-creatures, 
And so I imagined it as kind of like a trilogy of universe. And there was a mummy in there too. So I imagined, <laughs> of course, there was. Of, yeah, <laughs> as a trilogy, like a universal horror, like the stuff I grew up with. And people seem to think of me as a horror writer more than anything, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, people seem to like to think of me that way, especially at work. Well, they'll say, oh, you're a horror writer. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. I think people like, like the idea that there's like something kind of weird or dark in a person they're talking to. And, you know, they kind of wonder how you see the world and everything. And I'd really hate to tell them I see it pretty much, I think, the way almost everybody else does. I'm just a regular person. but Well, and people like to cubbyhole things, too. They like to be able to put a, a, a good, solid label on somebody because that, I think, makes it easier for them to to engage. You don't have to balance all of the complexities of a, of a complete human being in their social right. interactions. There's a label. You're a horror writer. I know what you do. Right, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, uh, you know, we, we recently had... Cat Rambo on the show and she teaches classes online and one of the classes she was teaching was literary techniques in genre fiction and you know looking at your background where you know the prose that you were writing had been very plain and basic and that the classics then later on uh, uh, really didn't engage with you and I when I think about the classics I think of things like Hemingway and Joyce and and that that very rich lush prose that that is often kind of a, a gateway drug for some writers not all certainly and yet your gateway your your engagement with speculative fiction really is that imaginative aspect that that speculative thing and and the prose side and the language side is more of a, I guess, a vehicle for conveying those imaginative elements more so than necessarily a, a, a pillar upon which you build your canon of work. Is that a, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, it, every writer would like to be able to do everything, you know. <laughs> sure. You know, I remember when uh, when I was in the writers group with Dennis McKiernan when I first started. Uh, there was another writer in it too who uh, published under the name J. Calvin Pierce. And even though all of us were writing, you know, speculative fiction, you know, Dennis was really great at, at he's good at language too, but he's really, really great at creating, you know, complex plots and world building. And Jim Pierce was excellent at language. He loved language more than anything. And I was great at coming up with ideas. And I thought if you could put all of us into like one of the flies matter transmitters and just like <laughs> you know, combine us into one writer, you know, we'd be able to, to do something pretty special. So yeah. Um, Language is, 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 is certainly important, and it's something I try to be aware of. I'm always amazed, though, when if I ever see a review or somebody is doing an interview and they comment on, you know, like my prose, and they say something nice about it or that they find it artistic, I'm, I'm surprised because even though I'm aware of that to a certain degree, it is more of a vehicle. Interesting. It's true. Interesting. And that, and that, that just, as, as one approaches one's craft— uh, uh, I think it's 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 essential to understand your DNA, uh, uh, both what excites you about the, the the craft itself and the stories that you're writing. You know, one of the things I do in my novel writing class at school is we talk about why do readers read, and there's all kinds of different reasons. I mean, some people will read to have their imagination stimulated, but others read because they want to identify with somebody like them. Sure. Other people read even if it's fiction; they want like an, a a good dose of nonfiction, so they'll read like an historical novel or the books that um missioner did with like they would have names like hawaii and alaska you know, right you know and you would learn a ton about hawaii and alaska and that and so readers read for a lot of different reasons and the same thing for why writers write mm -hmm. uh, and also i read an interview with 
there was an article actually by Isaac Asimov in Writer's Digest years and years ago where he said that, you know, I suck at characters and I suck at description <laughs> and I know that. And he said, if, if I spent my time trying to get better at these things, I probably would only get a little bit better. But then what would happen is, you know, the work wouldn't be as good because of the, instead of focusing on the strengths that I have. And then years later now, uh, this has become something called strengths theory, which is the idea is that, you know, in a perfect world, we'd be able to do everything great, but we can't. So what you want to try to do is find the things that you excel at and work at getting, you know, accentuating those, getting better at those and getting just good enough at the things you aren't that great at that it doesn't drag everything down. Wow. And, yeah. And so the example, I mean, they wouldn't use him now probably because it's, he's not doing so well. But back when this first became a popular thing, uh, Tiger Woods was used as an example quite a bit about like, you know, he had certain strengths that he just excelled at. And then a few things that, in his game that were just, you know, I just need to be OK at this. Right. And so, I, and so I think a lot of writers, new writers, you know, especially, you know, you read like a or you get a textbook and it's everything is in there. Here's the stuff on language. Here's the stuff on character. Here's the stuff on plotting. And you think you have to be excellent at all of it. And you, you do want to get good as best you can at everything, sure, sure. but it helps to identify what you're really good at and try to focus on that. I think that's outstanding advice. I, I that's brilliant. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, the, the clock has started to glare at me, but I'm going to ignore it as I am wont to do. Uh, uh, Samantha, did you have another question for Tim? I did actually. Um, Tim, I've noticed you write both adult and young adult literature. So do you ever find it difficult to stay in like one mindset? Like today I'm going to write for young adults or today I'm going to write for, for the older crowd. And do you ever find a storyline shifting from one viewpoint to another? <laughs> now that, that doesn't usually happen. I, I have a harder time shifting between short stuff and long stuff. Really? And I, yeah. And I have a harder time shifting between, something that's super dark and then something that might be lighter than that. So, so those can take, sometimes it can take me a couple of weeks to shift. Like if I finish one project like that, sometimes between like a, a tie in work too. Like I just finished what I hope are the last um, uh, revisions on a, a supernatural novel. And so, you know, I need to shift over and to write a short story and I haven't, it was a novel and it was a tie in project. My brain's having trouble shifting. That seems to be <laughs> Seems to be getting just a little bit harder as I get older. <laughs> the brain calcifies. <laughs> yeah, that that part does. But but and but going back and forth between like uh, uh, fiction for adults or fiction for younger people. No, not really. Okay. Um, I'm not really sure what it was. It is you know once I became a dad, I got really good at not swearing around my kids, and that just <laughs> almost automatically. Um, I'm good at not doing it in class. Good. My kids are getting older. My youngest is 16 now, and I'm not so good at. <laughs> My breaks are gone now in terms of language, but, <laughs> well, but it's something like that. It just seems to the shifting between adult and young adult stuff. It's not, it doesn't seem very difficult. Well, what's the challenge for you then between short fiction and long fiction? Um, it's, it's a different mindset really. I mean, with, with long fiction, you know, I feel like I need to be expansive and add things and make connections and work it on multiple levels with short fiction. It's it's kind of the opposite. I need to keep it constrained in a way. I need to keep it focused. It's almost like um, short fiction is like doing a sketch or a painting. And uh, a novel would be like doing like a whole show of paintings, like that would all be connected. Uh, and so I find it, and a lot of times, my, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a more natural novelist because I, I really struggled with short stories early on. When I was like 18 or 19, I didn't like reading short fiction as much as novels. I didn't find the reading experience as satisfying. Wow. Um, 
So, so it still feels like I can feel my brain kind of cramp up sometimes when I'm working on a short story. <laughs> it just doesn't do when I, I write a novel. And yet you have hundreds of short stories out there. Oh, the brain crampage you have endured for your craft. Yep, yep it's true. <laughs> well, look, the, the, the clock has, has basically morphed itself into a giant rampaging elephant and put on a blindfold and it's coming at me. Uh, uh, I, I can only assume that means we have once again transgressed the, the, the temporal boundaries we've set for ourselves here on the round table and i'm okay with that uh but we do have to wrap this up so tim wagner sir thank you so much this this has been a, a, an inspiration and a delight well thank you i had a great time yeah we did too we did too samantha there was some writerly goodness some 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 gold strewn before us uh, uh in that last 20 ish esque minutes or so uh, uh what are you taking from that what are you tucking into your into your writer's tool belt Definitely the character development. I've always tried to know who they were before I wrote the story. So uh, right. now I think they'll, I'll let them develop a little bit more on their own. Yeah, yeah. And that deep perspective, uh, uh, really, you know, that idea of a GoPro on your character's head, uh, uh, that makes good sense to me, too. I agree. I absolutely agree. For me, it was... and and. Longtime listeners will not be surprised by this was was that very Zen Buddhist attitude of of being mindful of your locations and and using your your attention uh, to focus very specifically on something. And I, I can I can see, you know, a writer walking down the street and looking at a tree or a person or a conversation and actually working out in your head. How would I describe that? Uh, uh, what are the, the the distinguishing elements of this for me in this moment that make that a a describable thing? Uh, I can just totally see that being not only uh, a, a very cool way to stay focused in your life, uh, but also an exercise in understanding your own perceptions. And, and through understanding what it is that you see and how you see it, uh, having that translate into how you write and what you what you see and what you invest in your authorial voice in the stories that you write. That that stuff just fascinates the crap out of me. <laughs> so that was very cool. Well, friends, thank you for tuning in as always. Uh, now, here's the cool thing about the roundtable. That was fabulous. That was a great 20-esque minutes of, of insight and, and writerly craft exploration. But here's where it gets even better. Uh, in seven days, we'll come back. We'll bring Tim. We'll bring Samantha, and of course, we'll bring myself and a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer who is going to toss into this mix a cherry bomb of a story pitch, an idea. And we're going to brainstorm the heck out of that bad boy. Uh, and it's going to be a, a, a study, a froth of, of creative exploration. And it's going to be awesome, but it's also, I know, it's going to be seven days from now. And that's a long damn time. Samantha, what, what can our listeners do between now and seven days from now to make that time just, just whiz by? Uh, well, I would suggest, you know, in the event that this ever comes up, they would go out and try and develop a resistance to Iocane powder. <laughs> you never know when that's going to come in handy. <laughs> you are such a nerd. Yes, yes, that is good <laughs> advice. Good advice. And it's inconceivable that that, that that advice could not be applied at some point in your life. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> I will tell you, friends, as I always do. Oh, God. You find what you're looking for, whether it's Iocane powder or, or, or those moments in your life that startle and arrest and delight you. Go out and look for those things. Look for the wow. Look for the holy crap. Really? Iocane? And I... Trust me, friends, if you go looking for it, you are so going to find it, and it will be fabulous. Uh, We will talk again in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.